Hi, everyone. I'll be giving the Bible reading from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Well, let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, your word is a challenge to the comfortable and a comfort to the challenged. And Lord, we pray, whatever one of those we are tonight, as we come to your word, we ask that your word would do its work in our hearts, each as we have need. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the very common frustrations about living in the modern world is that it is so different from the time in which our Bibles were written. Uh, There are so many things, there are so many ideas, there's so many just stuff that we do in our modern world, and and they they didn't do it back at the time when Jesus walked around and preached his word to us. Uh, And that can leave us feeling fairly high and dry at times as to how it is that we're supposed to live our modern life following the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Let me give you a really classic example of this. Take driving, for example. Uh, There's no chapter in the Bible that we can turn to and open it up and learn how to drive our cars. Uh, You know, there's uh, no commands like, you know, thou shalt indicate before merging, as much as some people, I think, need a command like that. Uh, And there's no passage that says, you know, blessed is the person who does not tailgate on the Mitchell Freeway, especially because I'm already doing the speed limit. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, there's just no part of that. And nor is there kind of an equivalent sort of chapter. There's no uh, chapter that says, this is how to drive your chariot, or this is how to ride your mule, or, or anything like that. And so we just kind of, we can sometimes feel a bit stuck. How is it then that we're supposed to live in this world that we find ourselves? And here's the thing I want to say to you today. If we are humble about God's word, if we are willing to sit under it and listen to what it has to say, then pretty quickly it becomes clear that God's word says to us more than we think. The Bible says to us more than we think. And so, no, there is no chapter in driving a car, but Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 tells me that I need to obey the governing authorities. And so I need to keep the road rules. You know, especially those numbers in the red circle, men, that is not a suggestion. You know, that is a command. And it's a command from an authority, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, that I should obey uh, as the Lord. And there's other things too, you know, when the Lord Jesus uh, teaches that I need to love my neighbor as myself, when he uh, warns against anger, surely those things apply to me just as much when I'm behind the wheel of a car as any other time. Uh, There's even more to it as well. When I was a, a young man, one of the senior saints in my church kind of took me aside and taught me how to buy a car. Uh, and he said, don't, don't buy like a young man's car. Don't buy a cool car with like two doors. It's, you know, interesting. Buy a boring car with lots of doors and big boot space and all that. Because then 
you can be generous. Then you can serve with it. Then you can drive people to church. You can drive people to camps. You can take people to beach mission and things like that. It was actually a really helpful talk. It changed my whole perspective about this thing. He had a whole philosophy of driving and a whole philosophy of buying cars that was built on the idea of being a servant, of being generous with it. It was a great conversation. Uh, you know, pretty quickly, if you do a little bit of work and you've got a little bit of imagination, you could develop a whole theology of driving uh, around uh, what the Bible has to say. Just by thinking about what the Bible as a whole says and collecting some of the most important passages. That's what we're doing with the topic of work at the moment. Uh, we're spending some time thinking about what does the whole Bible have to say about this thing called work that's such a big part of our lives. And we're even uh, collecting together a couple of really important chapters, really important parts of God's Word to help us to understand it. And so last week we had a a look at Genesis chapter 2. We had a look at what work was like in the beginning when God created the world. And in particular we saw that the Bible actually has a very, very broad view of work. Work is more, it's much more than what we are paid to do. Uh, Working in this world is making our world good for human beings. It's, it's good for them to live in and to flourish in. A work is the creative use of all of our God-given talents and God-given resources in the service of other people. All of it under God's direction as the one who, who made us, but also the one who gave us this world that he made as a project for us to complete. And so lots of things are work. Are work you know, The mum who stays at home to raise kids, that's work. The uh, making, you know, the dish, sorry, making, making the dishes, what am I talking about? That's work. But, you know, washing the dishes or making the dinner, that's work. Uh, you know, mowing the lawn is work. Volunteering is work. There's lots of things that are work by the Bible's definition. Uh, there was a very servant-hearted view of work that we, we saw as we read Genesis chapter 2 together. It was certainly not about my identity or about uh, my significance. And it certainly wasn't about what I can get out of other people. For myself, at the expense of them. I even saw just another example of this this week. I was reading Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. The thief must no longer steal, they must no longer take, instead, they must work with their hands so that they have something to give. The Bible has a very servant hearted view of work. We talked about lots last week. It's well worth listening to the recording from last week, even if I do say so myself. But even though this topic of work is more than just what we are paid to do, it's certainly not less than what we're paid to do either. And so if I'm going to be really practical with you, and that's what I want to do tonight, then we do need to talk about employment. We do need to talk about paid jobs. And in particular, we need to talk about the key relationship of paid work. And that is the relationship between the employee and the employer. We need to talk about being a worker and, and being a, a master, to use the, the, the words of this passage. Now, I know that not everyone is in that sort of a relationship. I know lots of you here are, are, are students, perhaps haven't got a, a job on the side, but you're, you're looking forward to work. There might even be someone who's snuck in here today who is retired. There's all sorts of different reasons. And then, of course, there is that other very uh, rare species of person, and that's the person who works for themselves. Uh, they're a person who would prefer to work 80 hours for themselves rather than 40 hours for someone else. But those people are still around as well. Uh, but really, uh, most of us, we either are or we have been or we will be in some sort of employment relationship. And so I've got three things that I want to talk to about us about today. 
Uh, What does God say to workers from Ephesians 6 verses 5 to 8? What does God say to masters in verse 9? And then lastly, what does God say to us? We'll try and draw some of these threads together. But I do need to give you a little context because Ephesians chapter 6 is a strange passage to be in tonight. And why do I think this has anything to say to us about work? Uh, when literally it is about slaves and masters. And there is just a little bit of baggage that we need to consider as we come to a passage like this one. Uh, because I think when we, we think about slavery, and particularly as we think about it in the Bible, often what the thing, the idea that's in our head is slavery as it was practiced in the 19th century, particularly in the United States of America. Uh, that was race-based slavery, That was dependent upon an appalling slave trade that was practiced often with great cruelty. It involved the kidnapping of people, taking them from their homes, then taking them far away to make them slaves for their lives and then to enslave their children and their children's children as well. Uh, And we are aware that that was a terrible evil. And I hope we are also aware that that was an institution that was gradually abolished under the influence of Christian statesmen like William Wilberforce and many others. And that kind of slavery, slave trading or kidnapping as it's called in the Bible, uh, that is always condemned by the Scriptures in the strongest possible terms. There's no sense in which what happened in the 19th century, that kind of slave trade, could ever be justified by the Scriptures. In the same way as there's no sense in which much slavery, as it's often practiced today, and there is such a thing as modern slavery, uh, could ever also be justified by the Scriptures either. But it is a mistake to imagine that the institution that we encounter in Ephesians 6 was the same as what we encountered in the 19th century. No doubt there was a form of it going on even then, uh, but by and large, slavery, as it was practiced in the Roman Empire, it was quite different. Uh, Firstly, it it wasn't hard labour. It often wasn't hard labour. Most slaves were slaves in a domestic setting. They, they served in, in household duties. They were a symbol of luxury, of wealth and, and of good standing. Uh, secondly, slavery then was not based on race. There was no wholesale systemic kind of enslaving of one group of people uh, over another. Uh, most people who were slaves were people who got themselves into debt and couldn't repay. And so this was the way they paid off their debt, by becoming slaves to the one they owed money to or sometimes as the punishment for a non-violent crime. Uh, Nor was it free labour. Most slaves were paid, uh, even if that payment was made towards the price of their freedom. Uh, Nor was it lifelong. There are actually many different ways in which a slave uh, could seek their freedom. Most slavery lasted on average about seven years, and under Roman law, a slave could be guaranteed their freedom by age 30 at the latest. Uh, nor was it something that made you a permanent underclass of people. Uh, at one point, the inhabitants of, of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, was made up of about 80 to 90% slaves or former slaves. They were a huge number of people. And so they had a great deal of, of power. Uh, slaves, they had rights under Roman law, including the right to be cared for and looked after. In other words, whatever name is applied to it, this was an institution that was there to solve certain social problems at that time, problems that we still have today. After all, what do you do with people if they can't pay their debts? Uh, What do you do to people when they turn to to crime in order to try and make a living? It is just a little bit more complex than we might think at first glance. Uh, 
Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say that slavery was a good and wonderful thing and everyone wanted to be one. Uh, That's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, Even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 said, if you're a slave and you can get your freedom, go and do it. It's a good thing. No one would say that being a slave was a desirable condition. And yet, there were some things you could do, only do. There were some jobs you could only get if you were a slave. Uh, you know, uh, slaves were, they were part of families and therefore they were also part of family businesses. We touched on this last week. This is, is all happening before the modern separation of work and home life. So most homes were also a business. And if you wanted to learn that business, if you wanted to, to learn that skill or learn that trade, you either had to be born to that family or you had to be a slave in that family. And so for some people, they actually chose slavery. It provided them a means of advancing themselves and, and educating themselves. It became a means of, of, of learning and even of making connections with people. Uh, and you also got job security. And that was an unusual thing in the ancient world. Most people uh, were reliant upon daily work. And so as a slave, sure, you couldn't quit, but you knew that tomorrow you could eat. And that was pretty important for a lot of people. For some people, slavery was a commitment to obeying their master for the sake of security and advancement. You know what that sounds a lot like to me? It sounds like a job. It sounds like a career. Is not a career a commitment to obey a certain master, to obey a a company or or a firm or whatever it is, for the sake of security and advancement. Uh, Is that not what that is? They sound very similar to me. Sure, there's a really big, important distinction, isn't there? You you can um, quit a career, can't you? You can, uh, you know, whereas being a slave, you couldn't. Uh, You know, we can find a new master if the one that we work for is, is not to our liking. Although, not all of you can do that, can you? Uh, some of you here, I suspect, have signed agreements with certain organisations in order to help you to be educated. Uh, some of you want to be doctors, and so you signed off with country medicine. I'll do this number of years out in the country. Uh, I'll, I'll pay back my debt that way. I'll, I'll get educated that way. Some of you have done the same. Some of you are teachers. You've agreed to be a teacher out in the country for a certain number of years uh, before you come back. You're not free. You actually have made yourself a slave for the sake of of security and advancement. Uh, you know, just kind of, let's all think about that as we go off to work tomorrow. Slaves. <laughs> but the point is that there is a context to these b- b- verses that means we shouldn't just ignore them. We do need to consider them. We do need to think about them. So what do these verses actually say? Well, uh, firstly, what is God's word to the workers? Come now to Ephesians chapter 6, would you? Uh, and if I had to summarize this passage, I would say... Workers, obey your earthly masters, verse 5, just as you would obey Christ. And earthly masters, verse 9, look after your workers, care for them, reward your workers, just as Christ has cared for you, in the same way that the heavenly master, in verse 8, rewards you. In other words, what we have here is actually a reciprocal and linked set of instructions that describes a relationship. And if, if both people do what the, the Lord Jesus commands in these verses, uh, then it is easy to say, to, to see, I think, that uh, this would lead to the best possible kind of worker and, and master relationship. But the really interesting thing is that the way that they do this is by actually 
imitating the way that the Lord Jesus Christ and his people, the church, relate to one another. You know, this is a lesson in the practicality of the gospel. There is a worker and master relationship, but it is also a self-conscious imitation of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. And so workers, obey as you would obey Christ. Be like the church in the way that you obey your earthly masters. And masters care as the Lord has cared for you. Be like the Lord in the way that you relate to those who work for you. And it's really interesting because just come back a little bit. Just come back to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22 for a moment with you. Just come back one, one page or so. Because notice that this is the same pattern that is used to describe the relationship between wives and husbands. There's this same self-conscious imitation of the gospel. And then go down to 6 verse 1 because it's a little bit more implied, but I think it's still there. It's also the same pattern of relationship between parents and children. It's the same self-conscious imitation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel message, it's not just describing to us the new life that we have in Christ, the the salvation that we have received from him, the love and care that that he has shown us, that we now respond to in faith and obedience. It's not just a description of that, that new relationship, that new life that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also the model of at least three significant human relationships. Husbands, wives, children, parents, workers and masters. Arguably, I'd say, the three most significant human relationships uh, that we experience on earth. And so when, we, when we're spending time in church, when we're hearing sermons, when, it's being the, when the love that the Lord Jesus Christ has being explained to us, when, when the need for us to respond to that in faith and obedience, you know, when we're, we're talking about in church our, our new relationship with the Lord Jesus, even when we're getting into kind of something quite niche and, and quite esoteric, what is being described for us is incredibly practical and incredibly important in our lives. Because as we hear and as we read and as we sing of the new and eternal relationship we have with the Lord Jesus, it's applicable in at least three important relationships in our lives. This is, again, it's a lesson in the practicality of the gospel. The Bible really does say more than we think. So come back to Ephesians. Let's get to some details then. Have a look at verse 5, would you? Let me read them to you. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Workers, slaves, they should be obedient to all that their earthly masters might require. But in saying that, Paul sets their obedience into a new context. There's a little bit of a play on words going on in this passage because the word master there in verse 5 is the same word as the word Lord that we see in both verse 4 and also in verse 8, which is used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. Our most masters are only our earthly masters, our earthly lords. We also have a new master, a new lord, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ who is in heaven. 
A master in whom our life is now hidden while we wait for his appearing. And so even as I work now, I need to look beyond my earthly master and see behind them my heavenly master. And realize that now by serving my earthly master, actually the ultimate master that I'm serving is Christ, my heavenly one. The one who will repay all wrongdoing and in whom there is no favoritism. Now, of course, some of us who are workers, we we have bosses who are are worthy of a a good day's work, and some of us don't. And for those few of you who are sitting here now who actually work for me, you can decide which one of those two things I am. I'll let you work that out. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to the follower of Jesus, because behind every earthly master... There is our heavenly master and ultimately it is him that we are seeking to serve and seeking to please. Uh, this, is, this is really quite striking. Becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ actually strengthens our earthly obligations. Uh, whereas we might be tempted to think that a new allegiance to the Lord Jesus might weaken them. Uh, We might imagine that uh, having an earthly master is now compromised by having a heavenly one, but actually it's not. Instead, our heavenly master puts it in good order. Our heavenly master redeems our relationship with our earthly ones. And so our obedience now should not be just one of eye service in verse 6, to win the favour of earthly masters while their eye is on us, whilst they are watching uh, you know, or in the few weeks before my performance review, hoping that they forget all my bad behaviour before that. The quality of our obedience and our work shouldn't depend on whether or not we are being watched. It should be wholehearted. It should be sincere in verses 6 and 7, knowing that ultimately we serve Jesus. I heard a great story about this once. This is one of those preacher stories. I have no idea whether it's actually true. But it's a story of a man after the Second World War who went to start a, a, a mine in Papua New Guinea and... Um, he, he found some really great workers. They worked really, really hard as long as he was watching. And every time he had to go down to town to pick up some supplies or something like that, they would down tools immediately and just sit around and do nothing. And so what he did, he, he had a glass eye from a war injury, so he popped it out, put it on a stick. Now the boss was always watching. Now they worked really hard no matter what, until one of them, a bright one of them, uh, creeped around behind it and put a can over the top, and then they all took an early mark and went home. But that's not the way we should work, is it? That's not our attitude. Whatever we are doing, we aren't doing it for the earthly master. We're doing it for the heavenly master. And our allegiance to Christ should mean that we are better workers. Just as our allegiance to Christ should make us better husbands and better wives, better parents and better children, and certainly better workers and better masters. And it is a little interesting historical tidbit that in the Roman Empire, Christian slaves actually attracted a higher price because they were considered more reliable and more faithful as workers. In fact, when I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but remember the story of, of Joseph and Daniel in the Old Testament. You know, you know those stories? Uh, both of those are stories of men. They're very much parallel stories, aren't they? Uh, both of those are stories of men who were slaves, uh, men who were, were captured and carried off into captivity And uh, they were tremendously gifted by God, but because of their allegiance to God, because of their faithfulness to God, they were tremendously reliable and and trustworthy workers. 
And so they were a huge blessing to their masters, so much so that both of them rose to incredibly high position, the, the, the second in command of, their, of entire nations. In fact, Daniel managed to do that four times under four different emperors. That's how faithful and reliable they were. And I, you know, I can't help but think that amongst all the other important things that the story of Joseph and the story of Daniel teaches us, they are examples of the kind of workers we should be. So faithful, so reliable that we are a blessing to those uh, who employ us. Now, I do want to say there is also here a limit to our human obligations and to our earthly masters. Because what does happen when there's a conflict? What does happen when our earthly master commands me to disobey my heavenly master? Uh, Well, uh, that's when we need to remind ourselves, why is it that we obey earthly masters? And the answer is because of the authority of the heavenly master. Because Christ reaffirms their authority and redeems our relationship. I'm only obeying the earthly master because of the heavenly master. So if there's ever a conflict, then of course what do I do? I, I obey the heavenly master. And so if the boss tells you to lie, the boss tells you to cheat or, or to you know, uh, defraud a customer or, or something like that, don't do it. Don't do it. Explain to them why you won't do it. Tell them what's going on. Tell them that your, your conscience and your faith in Christ will not allow it. Do explain your actions. But then you need to expect and even accept whatever consequences the earthly master then puts upon you. Uh, this is a really important point. They still have an authority over you, uh, even if you have to actually deny that authority and, and disagree with them in order to be true to Christ. There's a great example in Acts chapter 4 of the apostles doing this. The, the apostles, Peter and John, they're arrested. They're brought before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin commands them not to preach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter says, well, you know, you are earthly masters. And so, yes, you can imprison us, you can beat us, you can do whatever you want, and we will accept that from you. But the one thing we can't do is disobey our heavenly master. We must preach Christ. And so if you do do the right thing and the boss fires you, then rejoice and praise God, for you have been found worthy to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They do have that authority over us. We can't always expect to be treated fairly by our bosses, even when we are doing the right thing. Uh, The faithful and reliable work we put in as Christian workers will not always be rewarded by our earthly masters. In fact, 1 Peter 2 verse 18, uh, which echoes these verses, actually says, no, we don't just obey the earthly masters who are good and kind and considerate. Actually, we need to obey them even when they are harsh and demanding. But even if your earthly master is harsh, your heavenly master will not be harsh. Verse 8. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. The Lord Jesus will reward the work you do. He knows that ultimately you are working for him. And that's the word to workers. But what about the word to masters? Uh, it's there in verse 9. It's, it's only brief. Let me read it. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, 
and there is no favoritism with him. And so just as the heavenly master does reward everyone according to the good that they do, so too those who are earthly masters should reward in the same way each one according to the good that they do. In other words, they need to be fair. They should be just. Uh, They should care for those who work for them. Because earthly masters who are believers, they also have a heavenly master. In other words, earthly masters are too themselves slaves. They are themselves too workers and it is the same heavenly master that they are working for. Uh, And, you know, it's not just that person on the next rung up the corporate ladder that they are answerable to. They are also answerable to their Lord Jesus Christ. In heaven they have a master whom they too are accountable to. Now notice again, the heavenly master does not do away with earthly power but brings it under his rule. The powerful are still powerful in these verses. It's just now that earthly power needs to be exercised with justice and with fairness. They too must know that it is the Lord Christ they are serving in all they do. And they too must know that it is the Lord Jesus Christ they ought to imitate in all that they do. And Paul mentions one thing specifically. He mentions that the earthly master should abandon the use of threats against those who work for them. Now, this is not saying that somehow if you find yourself in a position of management that you know you don't ever kind of offer feedback or manage performance or warn if there's a problem. No, he's not saying that. But he is saying that we should reject all forms of manipulation or abuse or shaming or demeaning or terrifying those who work for us. Sadly, so often the tools of both modern and ancient management. And just as workers have been instructed to show respect with sincerity of heart, now masters are also urged to do the same, to show respect and sincerity of heart and to do so without favouritism, just as the heavenly master deals with us all without favouritism. And that's the word to masters. Now, how do we kind of pull all of this together? What is God saying to us in all of this? What is God's word to us? I think there is much application in these verses. And I do hope you can see that. I do hope you can see that this is a how to drive your chariot passage. It's not exactly the same thing as driving a car, but it has a lot to apply to it. Being a slave is not exactly the same as being a worker, but there's lots of things that apply to our situation. Uh, Yes, we do have some freedoms to choose our earthly masters and we can always find a new one. But the truth is most of us will find ourselves spending much of our paid working life under an earthly master or being an earthly master and many of us a little bit of both. And so it does help us to see that even in our paid work, it is the Lord Jesus Christ that we are serving. Paid work is certainly not all of work. Let's not forget the lessons of last week. But all work, even our paid work, as workers or as masters, it is the Lord Jesus Christ that we are serving. It's him ultimately that we are seeking to please and honour in all that we do. And that should be the attitude that we take with us as we head off to work on a Monday morning or whenever it is in our lives. Because there is this real sense in which all work is God's work. So Martin Luther, when he wrote his commentary on the Psalms, he you know, Psalm 145 says that, that God feeds all of his children. 
Well, how does God do that? Does he do that through extraordinary means? Does he do that through divine intervention? And the answer is sometimes, yes. He, he did rain down manna in the, in the desert for the people of Israel to eat for 40 years. The Lord Jesus Christ did feed 5,000 people with a little boy's packed lunch. But that's not the way that he most commonly chooses to feed his people. The, the way that the Lord God chooses to most commonly feed his people is just through the ordinary means of, of rain and sun and, and farmers and, and, and workers. As each one uh, does their part, uh, they're doing the work of God in feeding all of his children. Or again, uh, Psalm 147 verse 13, God promises that he will strengthen the gates of the city. How does he do that? Does he send his angels to patrol the streets? Not usually. Usually he gives us peace and security with having good systems of justice, good judges, good police and good civil servants. That's normally the way that God does things. The ordinary day in and day out work, the ordinary jobs that people do to keep our world safer, to keep people flourishing, there is a sense in which they are doing God's work. A part of God's general work in the caring for and the building up of our worlds. And all people, not just Christians, but certainly including us, we are caught up in that work. And this passage is a great reminder that God sees that and will reward it. But of course, Christian people are also caught up in God's special work to build his kingdom to come which is something that we're going to talk about more in two weeks' time. But I do want to say that if we work like this, if we are workers and masters like what Ephesians chapter 6 teaches us to be, then I think there are two results in particular that are worth uh, thinking about. Uh, One is very practical. If you are the kind of person who works like this, who works for the earthly master as if they are the heavenly master then actually the earthly masters, they will be falling over themselves for you to become their workers. Because you will be so steady, you will be so reliable, you will be so faithful, you will be so productive, they will be able to rely upon you, and so they will want you working for them. It's a very practical thing, this passage. And if you are the kind of master who who is fair and just to those who work for you, who, who rewards those who do good, then... The people who work for you will be very happy and very satisfied and even very productive and they will enjoy working for you. There's tremendous practicality in these passages. If you work like this, if you are a master like this, it's a wonderful thing. It is a good thing. It's the best possible of ways that we can conduct this, these sorts of relationships. It's very, this is a very practical passage. But it's also a very liberating passage. If you work like this then you won't be controlled by work. You won't be worried about the earthly masters and and what they think of you. You won't go home stressed out about uh, what the boss's opinion of your work actually is because you will know what your heavenly master thinks of your work and you will know that he will reward you. And so what Paul is wanting us to understand here is the tremendous freedom that we actually enjoy. He, he even wants the Christian slave to know the freedom they have in Christ. Yes, they may have an earthly master, but by their obedience to their earthly master, they even have the freedom to serve Christ and do everything in his name. 
And the same is true of us. Yes, of course, we enjoy many wonderful freedoms. Uh, freedoms in this country around leaves and uh, leave and, wa- and wages and, and workers' rights. We can look for new jobs. We can negotiate better pay. We can join a union. We can call out bad behaviour. We can and, and we, we should even do all of these things. But don't let these earthly freedoms distract you from the better freedom. The freedom to serve Christ in everything that we do, even our paid work. And thus the freedom to enjoy the rewards of Christ as well. Remember verse 8. Take this one away. The Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are a slave or free. In the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been promised a great reward, haven't we? We've been promised an inheritance, eternal life with God our Father and with the Lord who died for us. But the greatest and sweetest reward that any Christian can expect from the Lord Jesus Christ is that when we see him face to face, we will hear from his lips... Well done, good and faithful servant. I saw everything you did and I know it was for me. Thank you. And now let me reward you. That's what he'll say. What a wonderful freedom and what a wonderful blessing we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you care about us, Lord. Thank you that you even teach us about this part of our lives. It is a big part of our lives, Lord. It is a part of our lives that dominates our minds and our hearts so often. And so thank you, Lord, that even in this daily work that you give us, in all of its forms, it is an opportunity to serve our heavenly master who died for us. Lord, each and every day, in all that we do, Help us to honour him who did the great work for us in all the little works that we do. And Lord, help us to prize the reward he offers us above any reward that the world offers us too. And we ask it all in his name. Amen.